Welcome back to The Secret Runner, a bi-weekly podcast in which I'll be talking to an international Ironman competitor, My Secret Runner, to get training tips and coaching advice for everyday runners like myself to reach their next personal best. Episode 11 is all about bikes. The Secret Runner will give us a cost breakdown of his very fancy bike, and we'll also talk about what bike to use if you're just getting into triathlon. So let's get to it. Hello, Secret Runner. Hello, Pete. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're recording this a little bit earlier than we usually would, so I'd say I'm actually pro- probably a bit more sprightly than usual. Yeah, no, I feel completely awful, so I've only just woken up physically, but I feel mentally refreshed and lovely because I've got too many children. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm all good. I'd like to talk to you in this week's discussion section um about your bike and I'd quite like to go into detail and the specifics of it you might not want to tell me the exact price of your bike because you grimace when I ask you about it sometimes but can you give an indication of the price range of a bike of your caliber uh yeah I, to be honest I've even put the price out of my head so I wouldn't know exactly because I don't like to think about it um but it's several thousand pounds is that enough specificity for you or so f- four four digits yeah four digits okay do they range into five digits like 10 grand plus they do yeah I mean it's quite easy to buy a bike for 10 grand you do get some that will go up to sort of like, I'd say 12 grand is the upper limit of what people may actually buy and what is a marketable bike. What about 20? Do like elite have insane bikes? I mean, yours sounds insane anyway. There are there are bikes that are 20 old grand, but I wouldn't say that they're not 20 grand because of, because of professionals ride them and decide to choose them. They're 20 grand because they're like, special collaborations between sort of like Ferrari and Pinarello or between Aston Martin and another bike brand or something like that. Yeah, we've seen the options on the cars that we do at work. We'll get the brochures through from, I think Porsche is one of them, and at the back it just had a bike and it's insane amounts of money. But yeah, but not ignoring those, so, you know, an actual bike that an athlete would choose for track. So about 12 sort of grand, do you think, is the, the upper limit? For triathlon, yeah, about 12 grand, I would say, is the upper limit for the more expensive brands. But underneath 10 is was yours. <laughs> yeah, mine is underneath 10. I was underneath 10 above 5. <laughs> so I got my bike for about 300 quid, and it's not even like a cheap bike. I got a hybrid bike. It's a bit lighter than other ones. It's got many gears. It's fine. It's a nice bike. I like it. It's more than I'd normally spend. But I did cycle to work scheme, so tax and VAT will come off it and it ends up being like 200 and stuff. So, And it's a nicer bike than I'd normally buy. And then we've spoken a little bit about this. Your bike, is the frame completely carbon fibre? Was it some sort of composite? No, so it's carbon fibre, as are the wheels and the handlebars. So the large sort of parts of the bike are just pure carbon fibre? Yeah. Is that the bulk of the cost? Do you know like how it's broken down? Because what I was going to ask you is the cost of parts replacements on it. 
So, no, that is not the reason it costs that much. It is a contributing factor, but you can buy a carbon frame bike for £900. Is carbon fibre the same? Is it all the same or do you get thinner and thicker or... No, it's all to do with the weave of the carbon. Carbon fibre is like, it's a textile effectively. So the way that it's woven together and the layup of it affects the uh, properties that it has. So it's not like one use material. Um, so if you lay it up certain ways, then you'll get um, forgiveness and flexibility in certain directions and it will be rigid in other directions. And that's why it is a good material for a bike because of there's parts of a bike that you want to be really stiff because you've got power transfer. For example, down by the bottom bracket, the bottom bracket is the bit where your cranks go through. So where you're pedaling, that part of the frame you want that to be really stiff because of you don't want that to flex because that's going to take out power transfer from your legs into the pedals, into the cranks, into the frame. And so you're not getting as much power out the back end. So that that's an example of where, where you want it to be really stiff. But uh, somewhere like on the seat stays or chain stays, you might want a little bit of um, flexibility built in there or dampening because of road surface. So to give you a more comfortable ride. Right, okay. Especially with a triathlon bike, this becomes important because once you get off the bike, you've then got to run. So you want to deliver yourself in in good shape. You could ride an unbelievably stiff bike and it would be great for speed. But by the time you get off of it, you're going to, it's probably not going to be very comfortable. Your back's going to be all jarred. Your legs and your hamstrings and everything are all going to be knackered. Okay, and that kind of makes sense. So I always think of the frame as just one thing and that's it. But you're describing the frame, the way it's built, it's all considered in individual pieces, which makes sense. Again, thinking of cars, you've got crumple zones and then you've got structural parts of it and, and then obviously access ways. So. Absolutely. And the same with the car, the way that the car sits on the ground, you've got like a 4x4 which sits really high and then you've got like a two-seater sports car which is really low and the different properties that has. In the same way as you do a bike and its geometry will give a different handling uh, of the bike. So things like the frame and the wheel, it's, it's not just the fact that it's the carbon fibre, it's the type of carbon fibre that's used and the thought and the time and the development that's gone into where they put which type of weave and things like that. Yeah, and then in addition to that, obviously, then you've got aerodynamics, and that's where so much of the money goes into right. these days. For example, you can get a deep section wheel. Is that the the rim? Yeah. So the rim on your bike, I'm guessing, is like a normal box rim. Oh, if you cut through and look at a profile of it. Yeah, yeah. You can buy a deep dish carbon fibre rim, and it's more like the teardrop shape or the aerofoil shape. And you can buy those reasonably cheap. But again, there's so much more to it than just shoving carbon fiber into that shape and making it into a wheel because the effect that the wind has at different yaw angles, so be it crosswinds or slightly off headwind crosswinds or cross tailwinds, all affects performance of, of that wheel. And then of, on top of that, you'll have like the dimples or like any kind of texture on it to, to form uh, trips yeah. in the airflow at specific points so again you you could just buy a cheap carbon wheel and it's not had any of that thought gone into it and they've just kind of made it into a bit of a deep section shape and then you've got companies whereby they put so much research and development time into it 
And that wheel is going to cost so much more because the costs get filtered down. Plus, then they slap their brand name on it. And once a brand name gets a brand name, then... uh... Yeah, there is that part as well. Okay, so that's like the frame and like the main bits. But you were showing me your gear selectors recently. And it was like you had a little basket of electronic baby robots because you were were flicking the switches up and down and they were all sat in a tray or something all whirring and you'd detach them all and you just had a gift of spare ones or something and you had was it four of them and they were just sat there like wiggling slowly side to side so that that was the group set the group set is basically anything to do with the the gears and the brakes and the brake levers and kind of goes into sort of like the chain set, so the drive. All the fiddly moving parts. Pretty much, yeah. So a group set can be mechanical or electronic these days. And what I was showing you was my one of my electronic group sets that I'd just taken off an old bike. Right. Off the one that cracked. And yeah, exactly as you described. So to change a gear, you just have to press a button as opposed to crank a mechanical cable. When you press those... Is it continuous? Do you hold the button down until it gets there and let go? Or do you just tap it and it moves up? You like a sequential shift in a car again. Depends on brand and model. Um, But if we're talking about ones that are on the market at the moment, ultimately, it's up to you. You get an app with it and you can set all the parameters so that it responds to that switch as you decide. So the gears have a chip in them. They've got a computer in to store these settings and yeah bloody hell. some of the most recent ones are wireless as well so whereas i showed you the group set taken off the bike with all the electronic cables as well now you don't have those electronic cables attaching them they're all just wireless (laughs) two things of that one of them is um that's going to add weight with the battery in it and like wireless receiver as well but i suppose if you're it'll be tiny and you're removing the cables that run a fair distance so you're absolutely right. Um, with the, some of the wireless systems, uh, they are heavier than the wired counterparts. I guess the pro to it is just ease of installation and ease of changing parts because with the electronic wired ones, you obviously have to feed it all through the internal frame. And you have to do that with mechanical as well if your, ca- if your bike has internal cable routing. Um, that can be a bit of a pain. So it's kind of a payoff what you prefer really no i understand that from a computing point of view i prefer wireless everything people complain about um and this was the other thing about lag do you notice or get that at all so i haven't ridden a wireless system i've only ever ridden the wired ones so i don't know is the answer my thought is probably not no it's it's a relatively slow process changing gear and in that you can see it happening in your eye yeah, well, okay, well, there's a difference probably between your bike and and these top-end group sets. Obviously, you've got so much middle ground there as well. The same as with the frames. You're, we talked about carbon fibre, and your bike is probably an alloy frame. You've also got steel frame bikes. You've got titanium frame bikes. Some of the aluminium frame bikes at the moment can compete on a level with carbon frame bikes. And again, the aluminium has different properties titanium frame bikes are just obviously incredibly durable and light so again it depends what the purpose or the use of the bike is and it's the same with these group sets like you're absolutely fine with your gear changes on your bike i should assume well i tolerate them (laughs) you tolerate them well 
Well, for me, it's like if it doesn't go into the fifth or sixth on the back, it doesn't matter. I'll just use fourth and sixth. If for some reason <laughs> right. fifth doesn't go in, I don't care. Or I'll switch my front gear around and go up at the back. You know, like I work it out. And it's sometimes going up a hill, it's a bit shitty. And <laughs> um, I'll just either stand up and pump harder or I'll just stay in a lower gear and go and go, oh, I'll work that out next week kind of thing. So, and I don't service it and stuff enough either. So there, there is all that element to it as well. But no, that my gear changes are sometimes really smooth. You click them. A second later, there's a little click at the back and you feel the difference, but it's all it's all still clunky. And if you put your bike up on a ramp, spin the pedals, you can see it happening. I've got so much to say on all of that. I think we could do a whole episode on what you've just talked about. So on the bikes that I have that I ride with mechanical groups at, every time I ride it, be it riding it on the turbo train or at home or before I go out on a ride, I'll just make sure that all the gears run through properly so that I don't have that. And that takes me about maybe 30 or 40 seconds to do that. But that's because I know how to do it. Um, but it's something that I could teach you to do probably in about two or three minutes. That would be useful. <laughs> I can check whether or not the gears work, but if they don't, I just... That's what I mean. Like, if they don't work, uh, okay, it, it takes about 30 seconds to fix that. All right. Then that's definitely something we should do. Um, and that's it. You're willing to put up with that, whereas I wouldn't be. To be honest, I would get off and stop and make sure that it's working. And that's another plus to the electronic group sets is the fact that there's no cable that can stretch or anything like that for it to go out of sync. Yep. If it does go out of sync, you just flick a button on your handlebars and then you can put it into adjustment mode and you can adjust it using the same buttons that you use to change the gear. You just switch it into a different mode on the fly, adjust the rear derailleur, switch the button again, and it's fixed whilst you're riding along and it wouldn't take too much thought. Okay, they sound massively advanced. There's tons of stuff going on in there that I hadn't even considered, but I'm talking about the cost. So how much does a group set like yours cost okay so the high-end electronic group sets cost around two grand maybe two to three grand and that's for your gear levers gear levers brake levers any cabling the rear cassette the front chain ring is the cassette the the gears on the back wheel sorry yeah the sprockets basically front chain ring is the ones your like pedal arms attached to yeah and then your front derailleur and rear derailleur. So they're the bits that actually move to move the chain up and down the sprockets. And they cost sort of one to two grand. I mean, that's also a good chunk of the cost of your bike that kind of explains where some of that money's gone. Then. I mean, for me, it's easy to see where the money's gone. It's the wheels. There's a, a ton of money in the wheels. Um, and the same with the group set and with the frame. Put those three together... And then you've just got sort of finishing kit on top of that. So sort of like your saddle and stuff like that, which can cost like a couple of hundred quid. You can spend five to ten pounds on a saddle. <laughs> You're absolutely right. In fact, uh, on my hack bike that I use around town, I think I bought a saddle off of eBay for one ninety nine. That is actually the first thing. So when I replaced my saddle, that was something I was not willing to spent five or ten quid on and i only think i spent like 30 40 quid on it but that was like the first most obvious way to increase comfort i mean you've talked about flexibility in the frame and other stuff like that but but i didn't want to buy a really cheap saddle because i thought that would just be horribly painful you're right and also linking back to last week's show i'm talking about shoes and fit 
saddles are kind of like that. You can spend a few hundred quid on a saddle and it might not be the right saddle for you. Uh, or you can spend 30, 40 quid on a saddle and it might be the perfect one for you. But not five pounds. <laughs> um, Unless it's on eBay. I would, I would, well, I would, yeah, I would probably be a little bit sceptical of a five pound saddle. But you never know. No, that's, I didn't want to go that cheap. But I remember being in the shop and someone like 80, 90 quid and I was like, oh, that's like feasible, but that's just a lot of money for 15 minute bike rides twice a day thing. But you're saying they go up to hundreds of pounds. Yeah, you can spend a few, few hundred pounds on the saddle. Which again, that would cover the cost of my bike. Yes. So what else is there though? So that's like the next obvious thing, but I feel like I'm missing things like, I don't know, the bolts that hold the saddle in, like what else is there on the bike? So we talked about the group set and the brakes and the gears, but more specifically on the brakes, you have mechanical brakes, whereby it's obviously a lever and a wire, and that will go to either a rim brake, which is like the caliper, which grips hold of the rim of the tyre to slow it down, or it will grip brake pads that grip a disc instead attached to the wheel. Beyond that, you have hydraulic brakes, so rather than being mechanical, it's hydraulic fluid. Yeah, okay. And that's, again, what I have on this bike. So it's hydraulic disc brakes. Now that must, that again must add weight. Would that add weight? No, I suppose metal. It certainly did when the, when the technology was introduced because of the brake fluid reservoirs were actually quite big. And the brake fluid reservoirs are usually built into the like levers, brake levers. Yeah, okay. And so the first few that came onto market, they kind of had these like ridiculous growths on the levers that didn't look aerodynamic and they looked ugly as well. But now you wouldn't even realize it. As with all the stuff I'm talking about, I'm kind of talking about the right high end. So there are steps down all the way down. Yeah, but up at the top, I guess that again, it's all these little things I hadn't even thought of. Yeah, and then you've got the adjustability as well. So there's going to be a fair bit of money that goes into that. So the adjustability of the cockpit. um, So your bike, for example, you'll be able to raise the saddle up and down and you'll be able to raise the handlebars up and down. But beyond that, there's not going to be too much adjustability. Whereas on a triathlon bike, most people will need a lot of adjustability because in an ideal world, you'd have your bike tailor-made to you like you would a tailor-made suit. But they can't do that. Bike manufacturers just do small, medium, large, extra large or whatnot. And that doesn't fit most people because most people don't fall bang on those numbers. So then they need to put adjustability into the bike. So for example, my handlebars, you can change the stem length uh, and then the handlebar height, but then you've got the skis that sit on the handlebars. Yeah, is that for when you're leaning forward on like a road triathlon bike? Yeah. Like the straight ones that stick straight out the front. That's right. So you'll have like a fore and aft position, and then so basically four axis, forward and back, up and down. Yeah, okay. And then beyond that, you'll have tilt. So you'll have an angle where you can tilt that as well. And then that, again, goes the same for the saddle. You have a fore and aft, you have an up and down, and then you have a tilt angle as well in all directions. So that that's important. And how much kind of adjustability the bike has in that sense, obviously, takes more research and development and, and componentry. So that will all add to the price as well. And then something else, probably one of the more final things that will add to the price, but I don't necessarily see a reason that it needs to add price to it 
So a bit like optional extras on a car. You can have the like foundation model and then you might buy the one with, I don't know, two coffee cup holders instead of one. And uh, and they pump the price up a little yep. bit. And... Seat back tray tables. That's what we went for. So Ooh, the kids nice. in the back have got a little fold down airline table. Yeah. Oh, nice. Very popular. <laughs> you don't quite get one of those on a bike, but not far off. You get like a bento box. Bento box for your bike. Yeah. So that's what I have on. Like a little lunch box. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's built into the top tube frame. So, and then it has a flip lid on it so that I can store my nutrition in there. Ah, oh, you call it a bento box? Uh, yeah, bento box. Oh, uh, yeah. They look, they, they're solid plastic as opposed to like a saddle bag. And they, they actually look like, oh, it's like stealth technology. They're really angled. So this is the thing where the money can come into it. So you can have them as aftermarket add-ons. Yeah. Whereas mine is built into the frame. So again, it's all integrated. And that's another big thing in bike design at the moment is integration. And there'll be a lot of value that goes in there. So you have integrated handlebars and stems. So now you don't buy the handlebars separately. They'll be built into the rest of the frame of the bike, basically. And it's the same with like the nutrition and hydration. On a high-end triathlon bike, you'll expect to have a space to be able to store your nutrition within the bike. And you'll also have uh, your hydration, not just on the bike, it'll be built into the bike. Storing it between the handlebars in a bottle between your arms. Or you get some that will have like a bladder in the down tube of the frame. And then a straw coming out so that it just goes straight into the frame of the bike again. And then during the race, as you go through an aid station, you pick up a bottle And then the frame will have like a little valve, a a one-way valve on it. So you grab the bottle, you can stick the bottle end into the top of the bike, squeeze out the water back into the frame of the bike to top it up, toss a bottle. Where would that valve be? Like in the handlebars and it will funnel back down to the reservoir? Yeah, in the handlebars or the stem or the top of the tube. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. So, no, that's cool. This has all been... Because obviously you see those price labels and you're like, how, why? Like it can't be that much, but then it's not... It's not just change the frame to carbon fiber and it's not just put electronic brakes on. It's then like, why are electronic brakes that expensive? And then all this other is, this is what I wanted to know about, like all this other stuff, which actually just sounds, I'd love to have a go on your bike or at least I have a look at it and just seal this stuff together. Like I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think it's all the integration like that. It's all the stuff that you can't see without looking at it in a lot more detail. So I think all the money comes in places that you can't actually see just looking or glancing at a bike. Yeah, that's that's completely answered my question. Why does your bike have another zero on the end compared to mine? And it's not that the frame is five grand and everything else is the same. It's every bit of it needs an extra zero on the end, each individual component. Absolutely. Which makes sense now. Now I say it out loud. Okay, the question from the audience this week is not a one, one specific question for one person, but a general question that you've been asked a lot and has, has come up. Do I need a triathlon or TT time trial specific bike to take part in triathlon? And I just want to say before you answer that, I believe your very first bike, didn't you buy yourself a shiny, nice, fancy bike because your other one got nicked? And so you had a good one for your first triathlon. But you hadn't planned to. 
You just bought it because it looked nice. That's right. Yeah, I did. So to answer the question and feed into that is no. Ultimately, you do not need to do that. You do not need to do what I did. And you absolutely do not need a specific triathlon or TT bike to do to take part in triathlon. A perfect example of this is recently the Collins Cup race that happened. I won't go into details of what that is, but look that up because that's a fascinating race in itself. Um, There was a USA competitor there, Taylor Nib. She rode on her road bike because she's usually used to short course racing. Now, everyone else was on time trial bikes, but she got the fastest bike split of the day out of the women and so that is just an absolutely perfect example. She was more comfortable and confident on her road bike. She hasn't spent much time on a TT bike. And so she rode her road bike in that race. And it got her for the fastest bike split of the day. And the win as well. So yeah, there, there's a perfect example of all of it. So if I was going to go to like a local triathlon in a park next week where no one would be doing any impressive times and it would just be normal people, what what kind of range of bikes could I expect to see? So at a very entry level triathlon, I think you would still see people there with bikes like mine. So it's probably important not to feel daunted by that. But you will also see people there on a mountain bike. Or just a cheap uh, sort of like commuter road going bike. Now, that's great. Just do, why not? It's just one section of the triathlon. Just go and have fun and go and see if you enjoy it. And then if you want to spend more on a bike because you love it and because you want to spend money on that sort of thing, go ahead. It's absolutely fine. My advice is kind of maybe a bit beyond that, which is when people might have quite a nice road bike, And to then go out and buy a specific TT bike for triathlons, you've already got a good bike and you're going out and spending loads of money on a bike that you're just going to use in a few races throughout the year. So you're talking about when people are going to spend the same money again on something not that different. Is that right? Yeah. For me personally, I would rather just have the the triathlon bike Again, it's all relative, but like if you've got a perfectly fine road going bike, there are a number of ways that you can make it more adaptable for triathlon. Like you can buy the clip on aero bars. There's so many upgrades that you can make to that before you get a TT specific. Okay. And it's a rabbit hole triathlon. A lot of people could be put off by the expense of it because you could spend thousands and thousands and thousands on the sport, but you don't need to in order to be able to enjoy it. I think any any hobby is a rabbit hole, like even running is a rabbit hole. It might be narrower and it might not have as deep a bottom if you eventually get down there, but whether you've got like seven pairs of shoes and God knows how many like tri suits and t-shirts and stuff, you've okay. GPS watches. Yeah, GPS watches, you've got more than one, haven't you? No, 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 I, I haven't. I've got my old trusty, yeah. But yeah, you've got, even for running, it might seem simple compared to your bike stuff, but then if you compare your running gear to mine it's still a rabbit hole and there was one other thing that i wanted to say when you said you could have the road bike or you might not want to spend the money again to get a a tt bike you said you'd rather just have the tt bike could you do it that way around like if you were could you sell your nice road bike buy the tt bike and then just use that cycle to work every day and then you've still only got one bike but you've gone the other way you've only got the 
quickest one. There's nothing. There's no reason you couldn't do that. Again, it's trade-off and compromise. It's not going to be as comfy for your commute each day. And you're going to put wear and tear into that bike. So when it comes to the maintenance side of it, it's going to cost you more probably if it's some fancy doodah bike or whatnot. So yeah, it's, it's about trade-off. Someone who competes as much as I do and trains as much as I do, from a cost-effective point of view, I actually find it best to have a road bike and a TT bike and to use them both kind of throughout the year, but the TT more in fair weather. And what I find is, is that my overall maintenance bills come down. Both bikes have more longevity in them. Whereas I know someone like my brother, he's that example that you just gave. He has TT bike only. And he's forever each year spending quite a bit of money on the maintenance of it. Does he cycle it to work and stuff as well? He doesn't, but like because he uses it for his training and racing and on his turbo trainer for everything he does, it means that it's taking all the wear. And when you're training for Ironman, there's a lot of mileage, so there's a lot of wear. So going back then, do you need a TT or a triathlon bike? If it's someone like me who's got a bike and I've never done a triathlon before, and I'm just going to turn up and give one a go. Just, just take whatever. Don't care about the time or anything. Just go and find out what a triathlon is and it'll all work. Yeah, why not? And then and then if you really, uh, after that, are like, no, I definitely want a road bike or I definitely want a TT bike after that, then great. But yeah, no, there's no need to, especially for your first one. But you say for someone who's sort of more in the middle ground, who's got a nice bike that they could do relatively well on, consider upgrades or parts they can swap out for race day etc yeah so you might have someone who's already so if you were coming to triathlon you're coming to it from a running background i would say you might have someone who's come from a road road cycling background they might have quite a nice road bike they don't even need to go out and buy a tt specific bike they can just make plenty of upgrades to their to their bike and they'll be able to get plenty of benefit and longevity out of that for racing uh, before they would get any benefit out of uh, getting a TT-specific bike. Thank you, Secret Runner, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Pete, and thanks, everyone, for joining us again. Please head over to thesecretrunner.com to find our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. There you'll be able to send us your listener questions, which we'd love to answer on future podcasts. Listen to our next episode to find out how our training's going. So, off you go, stay motivated, and go share your secret. Secret.